Like all the controls on this remote unit, the volume is fully variable. Should the telephone ring, more guests arrive. Okay, shall we start? Uh, today we have the honor of somebody that would normally play in Globen, I would say, to come and uh, entertain us uh, from Switzerland, uh, Juka Takela, expert in many fields, so I will not uh, go in there. Um, he will talk about um, the right ventricle. It was a lecture he gave in Helsinki when we were there, and a kind of... In my eyes, a lot of the problems that we have in the clinic, the answers are in the physiology. Yeah? Although we often ignore the physiology, and this is exactly what kind of a feeling I got from the from the talk. So I'm very excited that Yuka will was willing to do the same talk here. Um, it will be taped, so it will be on stairs uh, later on the website. Uh, questions anytime, so you just interrupt Yuka and ask your questions whenever they pop up. Yes, please. Thank so thank you very much again for the opportunity to uh, to, to give this uh, presentation. It's um, as I already said to the uh, to the residents. I'm a, I'm a retired guy, so it's a bit suspect to think you know speak about clinical issues uh, when you haven't seen the patients for the last six months or so. But I mean, with this with this warning label on my talk. Please, uh, please uh, still consider that I used to be at least a clinician still uh, by, the, by, the end of, uh, by the end of July. So uh, the right ventricle, uh, I think, is, is something uh, which all we know that it exists. And uh, we know that you know, it's uh, in the thorax and it's combined with the, right, uh, with the left ventricle somehow. And that's about it, you know, unless we are talking about severe core pulmonary or so, we don't really pay much attention <coughs> to the right heart. And, and therefore, I always think the right ventricle as a hidden suspect. It's a hidden suspect, uh, first of all, because we tend to ignore it, number one. Secondly, because it is... Uh, more difficult to assess than left heart function, for example. And third, because uh, the big experts worldwide have been teaching us now for years and years that, you know, stop measuring central venous pressure, <coughs> which I think is the most ridiculous uh, argument I've ever heard in my uh, uh, career of uh, intensive care medicine. So let's just start with a few arguments. I think that my first argument would be that the right heart failure and dysfunction is a common problem. It is much more common than we usually think. And I will try to show you some data also supporting that. It is underdiagnosed. We uh, see it, but we don't recognize it. It is misinterpreted with consequences to the patients. And its clinical presentation, if you look at this, hypotension. Hypotension is the most common 
reason for us to do therapeutic interventions on the cardiovascular system. And as we have been taught for years and years, you know, always first give volume, but the problem is that you worsen right heart dysfunction by volume low. Furthermore, such things as a low mixed venosaturation can trigger it and can worsen it. And why is that? Because a low mixed venosaturation is a signal to the pulmonary circulation to vasoconstrict. And that increases the afterload of the right ventricle. The same is true for mixed venous PCO2. If the PCO2 in the, in, in the pulmonary artery goes up, either due to, uh, due to uh, low cardiac outputs or to ventilatory strategies or, or whatnot, the PCO2 in the mixed venous blood can also trigger basic constriction in the pulmonary circulation. Furthermore, right ventricular dysfunction is one of the causes of pulse pressure variation, which every intensivist today tends to love and look as a signal for giving some more volume. But in right heart dysfunction or failure, it is a catastrophe because it can worsen the underlying cause. Pulse pressure variation is a sign of preload dependence, and I'll come back to that, that right heart failure makes preload dependence of the left ventricle. Why is right heart so susceptible to these problems? Well, first of all, it ejects the blood into a circuit which has a low resistance and a high compliance, and consequently, a low pressure. The isovolumetric pressure that the right heart has to perform before it ejects across the, uh, the, the pulmonary valve, this is very low as compared to the left heart. There is practically very little or no isovolumetric uh, relaxation taking place. And therefore, the right heart basically acts as a passive conduit. Those of you who have been working in pediatric cardiac surgery know very well that the fontan circulation, actually, the right heart just, you know, is a, really is a conduit. The systolic function of the right heart is very sensitive to even to the smallest increases in pulmonary vascular resistance. And uh, if it's acute, the adaptation capability is very rapidly exceeded. And then you have a systolic overload and dysfunction. Only if it's a chronic one, then can the right heart can adapt by becoming a bit hypertrophic. Uh, becoming slightly, uh, slightly uh, expanded, but still then it's the hypertrophy that will, will uh, protect the right heart from failure. <coughs> it has a low diastolic elastance, but, and therefore it can adapt 
to some degree by dilating, but the consequence of the dilatation is the compression of the left ventricle. And since these two hearts function in series, the distension of the right heart will inevitably reduce the loading conditions of the left ventricle. Now this is just uh, data from, from patients. I will just show one individual patient here to demonstrate to you the, 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 the mechanisms. So this is the uh, right ventricular pressure and the corresponding pressures in the pulmonary artery. And uh, therefore, this pressure gradient, this is the pressure gradient which needs to be created to open up the pulmonary, uh, uh, the pulmonary valve. And this is a direct measure of the afterload of the right ventricle. So you can see that for each beat we can estimate what is the afterload of the right ventricle. And now if you take unproblematic mechanical ventilation by patients, we can see that you can see the inspirium and experium shown in the airway uh, pressure above there. And you can see the corresponding pressures in the right ventricle and the pulmonary artery. And you can, you can see that the changes are really, really small. We have in the inspirium, the end diastolic pressure in the right ventricle is about nine millimeters of mercury. And in end diastolic uh, pressure in experium, is seven millimeters of mercury, just two millimeters of mercury difference. But that is already a substantial part of the total workload that the right heart has to do to open the pulmonary uh, artery valve. And uh, if you look at this, the uh, corresponding pressures in the pulmonary artery, and then we calculate the pressures, you can see that just by this normal breathing, we have the isovolumetric pressure changes about 1.4 millimeters of mercury. You can see that's nothing. Well, that is a small number, but it is relevant to the right heart. <laughs> to, see, to show you a bit more extreme conditions, this is a very, very old study from Jardin from, from France in 1989, where they looked at the changes in the uh, loading conditions of the right heart by measuring pressures uh, over the, uh, the isovolumic pressure change, and experium, peak inspirum, and just by increasing the tidal volumes. And as you can see, linearly, with this increase in tidal volume, linearly the afterload of the right ventricle increases. Does it matter? We'll come back to that. But uh, just that we, we, we realize that these small changes they have a fundamental change to the loading conditions of the right heart. This is a fairly extreme case. You wouldn't probably see them the, the, this today. This is also from, from Jardin and, and Antoine Vieja Baron. One patient where you have old bad quality echocardiography, uh, but you can see the uh, normal position of the septum there marked in blue, then they increased the P to 20. And what you can see here is that 
first of all, the pressures go down. And secondly, you can see also that, if you to make an echo, you can see that now we have a dilated right ventricle which compresses the left ventricle. And the reason for this is physiology. If you look at these pressure tracings, here, always the left ventricular pressure is higher than the one in the right side. Here, the right ventricle has higher pressure than the left ventricle. And as a consequence, the septum has to shift. And as a consequence, the preload of the left ventricle is limited. It is simple physiology. The pressure effect on a, on a uh, closed space. So basically, as a concept, just schematically, increased right ventricular afterload when it is substantial, and we can see typical <coughs> events, pulmonary embolism, acute pulmonary hypertension, which, by the way, is very common in sepsis, is as a rule pre present in acute lung injury, positive pressures, mechanical ventilation, lung hyperinflation, these all predispose the patients to this mechanism. And then, of course, increased right ventricular preload by volume overload is a further factor that can lead to this situation. <coughs> if you would do an echo, you would see, for example, something like this. This is simple, simple, uh, simple uh, disposable echo probe that ha has been used in, in this patient. But you can clearly see the dilated uh, right ventricle and the paradoxical mo uh, motion of the septum. Mm -hmm. Or here, a, a more substantial picture of septal shift using TE, right ventricular dilatation. And with each beat, the preload of the left ventricle is limited. And the consequence is pulse pressure variation. So if you would give volume to this patient because of the pulse pressure variation, you would most likely precipitate yeah, the acute corporal D-shaping, same thing. So the left ventricle output depends on right ventricle. There is no left heart failure without right heart success. They can be present simultaneously. They can, they can uh, coexist, and, and the magnitude can, can change dynamically. But it's really so. The LV output depends on right ventricle. This is an old, old paper, actually a paper which I probably have never had so much problems in publishing anything than this. So this was at the height of the pulse pressure variation height. And we said, but you know, it doesn't work if the patient has pulmonary hypertension. And we were just told that we don't, we don't know how to, how to do these studies in patients. But finally, we got it published. And we took patients who had moderately elevated pulmonary artery pressures, not a fundamental uh, right heart failure or so. Almost 70% of the, these patients had, had uh, marked pulse pressure variation. 28% of them responded for volume. And the reason was quite simple. It was because they had, as a result, 
of uh, volume loading, they decrease the right ventricle ejection fraction. <coughs> and this is, you know, usually uh, you are told how nicely pulse pressure variation uh, uh, predicts uh, volume responsiveness. This is how badly it does when you have pulmonary artery uh, hypertension. We have two groups of patients, cardiac surgery patients, septic shock patients, and it's really, it is of no use. Interestingly enough, in these patients, the ROC for central venous pressure is much better. <laughs> so, uh, what are the patients who are at risk? Acute or subacute pulmonary hypertension. If you do cardiac surgery, I don't know how well you are aware about that, that extracorporeal circulation predisposes the patients to high sensitivity to increases in PCO2, in mixed venous PCO2. I'll show you some data, old data later on. That. And it's usually, it's temporary. It just takes <coughs> the first 8 to 12 hours and then it's gone. Sepsis, acute lung injury, mechanical ventilation with high pleural transpulmonary pressures, and then the misinterpreted hemodynamic <coughs> monitoring. This is old stuff comes from, uh, from Finland, from Helsinki. And uh, here they actually, they <coughs> in the 90s, they tested what hypercarbia did the right heart function. And they did, did several studies where they controlled for the, uh, for the CO2 either by changing the ventilation or changing the inspiratory concentration of PCO2, so there are challenges. And in both instances, you could see that acute moderate hypercarbia in the mixed venous system caused a dysfunction of the right ventricle. This is um, more recent data uh, from France as well. This is, was also from the Arabs group. So if you looked at the ARDS patients and right ventricle dilatation, you could see that 70% of these patients had some degree of right ventricle dilatation. Very few had a corpulmonale, but still it means that all these patients are predisposed to any further increase in right ventricular afterload. They are predisposed to right ventricular failure. This, is, uh, this study was, uh, came out in, uh, in the Blue Journal um, I think it was early 2017, it was e-published already in 2016. Vigneon and, and, and others, they were three centers, I think they studied a fair number of patients and they uh, observed uh, the average end diastolic areas ratio in this patient was 0.7. So the average was clearly pathologic although the acute corpulmonale was rare. But clearly, this mixed group of patients, different types of shock, I, I still show that. In this patient population, in this patient population, the average ratio of the two ventricles was clearly pathologic. Um, predicting the volume responsiveness, as I already alluded to, PPV or SVV, whatever you want to do there, passive leg raising, cable diameter variation, there are different ways of trying to do that. 
And Vieira's Barone's group, they made a, a multicenter uh, trial in France. They looked at how the patients in optimum conditions, how you could predict their volume responses. They verified then their predicted response by doing an actual volume challenge. It was quite nicely done. Um, I will show uh, the results from that. Uh, but before I go to the result, I just want to remind you that if you know the gray, gray zone principle of diagnostic accuracy. So if you take a variable and a cutoff value, what is the uh, range where you can reliably use this prediction? And you can see that if you take the PPV, any limit, mm -hmm. and then the, the, uh, the uh, insufficient diagnostic accuracy of that, in about 62% of ICU patients, you actually are in this gray zone where you can't really say what would be the predictive uh, validity of, of the test. It works much better in the OR. Obviously, we have usually, on the average, much, much healthier patients in the OR as in the ICU. But anyway, let's go to the, to the results of the volume res responsiveness assessment. So this is from, from three different uh, French ICUs where they studied patients all under muscle relaxation and control mechanical ventilation, ideal conditions for evaluating any of these, these predictive variables. And this is, they used the passive leg raising as a challenge, volume challenge test. And first of all, you can see that the usual curves that almost look like 90% ROCs are not true in these three centers with extremely well-trained echocardiographists who compared that with variability of, uh, of the inferior vena cava diameter and also uh, the uh, <coughs> flow velocity variation at the aortic valve, and you can see that none of these predictions actually were quite impressive. 65% of, uh, of, uh, of area under the curve is not uh, very impressive. Then they did an actual fluid challenge. And look at this. It even got worse. So the passive leg ratio, which was used as a surrogate, but then you re did a real volume challenge, still it became almost almost uh, impossible to predict the responsiveness. And the reason for this, the reason for this most likely is the presence of right ventricular dysfunction as evidenced by their, heart, their, their, their high ratios of the end diastolic areas. <coughs> so how to evaluate and monitor right ventricular function? I think that to diagnose it Nothing beats echocardiography. That's for sure. You can use whatever techniques you have available. I come from the pre-echocardiography uh, uh, generation, so I, I <coughs> like to use the, uh, the, the HDEE, which is the, uh, which is the, uh, the very simple uh, uniplane probe which you can put in the esophagus, and then you get a nice four-chamber view, and, and you can just visually uh, evaluate uh, the uh, the uh, status of the uh, of the right ventricle, but if you have a good uh, echo person at hand, that's the best choice. And what I think is is really then interesting. I don't care. I, I was I was so impressed when Antoine Vieira Baron, who for me is one of the 
one of the top echo guys uh, in the ICUs. I asked him, you know, <coughs> what do you measure? I said, nothing. I just look. I just look at the, the areas. I said, you know, you, you, you ever do TAPSI? I hate TAPSI, he said. I never do that. <laughs> and I think that, you know, it, it's really about we, we want to see a dynamic picture of <coughs> what's going on. And we can challenge dynamically when we visualize it using your favorite techniques. Just make sure that you get a, a, a nice view. You can't get it always, but I mean, the best possible view, uh, view you can get. And then challenge it a little bit. Then you can see if it changes. Position change. You can even increase temporarily air pressure. You could, uh, you could raise the legs if you want. I, I'm a lazy guy, so usually I just press the lever and, and increase the CVP a little bit and see what the right one <coughs> does. Simple things. To monitor, uh, you can you can start throwing things at me if you want, but I still like to use the right heart catheter. Because if I want to diagnose and monitor the right heart, then I obviously have to monitor the right heart. And the only thing which we can use to monitor the right heart in, in addition to echo is the PA catheter. And of course it's complicated, but it gives you a lot of information. You have the pressures, you have the flows, you have the end diastolic volumes, you have the ejection fractions continually. You have the gradients, and, and therefore you can have a continual monitoring of what's going on. And I think that all these technologies, they are friends. They are not foes, they do not replace one another. They bring complementary information. And this complementary mechanistic information is really relevant for the right ventricle. And of course, we have to think about that, that there are also extravascular factors that can modify it. Or if you have a stiff thorax, if you have uh, high airway pressures and so forth, that of course, that can modify these relationships. Echo for rapid orientation and more comprehensive specific diagnostics when necessary, and the PA catheter for monitoring and detection of evolving problems. And I will just show you uh, one example. <coughs> I dare to do that because I know that you are Clinisoft users here as well. So um, this, is, this is a case where in this particular period of time, you have right ventricular dysfunction evolving. And just let's go quickly through the <coughs> colors here. So blue is mixed venosaturation. Reds are obviously arterial uh, blood pressures. The light green is cardiac output. And then the uh, dark green is, is, is heart rate. Messy stuff, huh? Here is pulmonary artery pressure, the red ones, uh, the um, uh, orange ones. And then you have the uh, PAOPs, the, uh, the uh, coronary artery occlusion pressures, these individual values. And then you have the central venous pressure. And then you have stroke volume. Now, if you, if you are um, used to look at these trends, you can, you can probably very fast see what's going on here. But sometimes you just need to digest it. So let's dissect it to get the information. Now, so we, here we have a, the trend. If you go back, just to make sure that we are all on the same page, <coughs> here we see a continual decrease of cardiac output. 
at the same time the cardiac output goes down, the PAP goes up. What does that mean? That means a true increase in pulmonary vascular resistance. You don't have to calculate it. It is a true increase. You have reciprocal changes. So there's an increase of right ventricular afterload. At the same time, you can see that the gradient between the central venous pressure and the pulmonary artery occlusion pressure, which here is fairly high, also indicating increased pulmonary uh, vascular resistance. But you can see that this narrows here, and then it reverts. So the central venous pressure becomes higher than the pulmonary artery occlusion pressure, which means the right heart is dilated, <coughs> and we have an acute right ventricular loading. And if you look at the concomitant changes, it can be verified here because the right ventricular ejection fraction in red goes down and the end diastolic volume goes up. So this mechanism has a direct physiologic, pathophysiologic relevance. So we can summarize this. You can see all these signs and then the explanation acute right ventricular loading leading to this right heart dysfunction. <clears throat> it is also useful to consider, if you go back here, to look at the, this gradient, the pulmonary artery diastolic <coughs> pressure, pulmonary artery occlusion pressure gradient, because that per se shows you that there's an increased resistance. And the reason why it shows it is this, because if you look at what happens when we, when, when we do the, uh, the uh, occlusion pressure, we have first we have resistance, we have resistance here, and we have resistances here. And this pressure drop here reflects the whole resistance of the system. So when the gradient goes up, you know that the resistance is increasing. Of course, it can go up if the flow goes up a lot at the same time. But usually, that is a signal of that you have an increased resistance in the pulmonary circulation. And by the way, of course, this would be of interest for you if you would be interested in, interested in how much uh, risk there is for fluid filtration through the capillaries. Because it's the capillary pressure which drives the fluids out of the uh, pulmonary circulation. So, uh, in this case, uh, <coughs> uh, we did the right thing. Obviously, uh, there are some old medications which probably are not used anymore uh, anywhere outside of Bern, uh, uh, such as aminophilin or teofilamine. And you can see the fairly dramatic, dramatic uh, uh, effect of one bolus of Teofilamine, reverting the gradients and, and pushing the cardiac output up. So, I would uh, soon come to the end. I think that the uh, right ventricular failure, as I said in the beginning, is a common under-diagnosed and misinterpreted problem. You just have to suspect it. Always suspect it. And the clinical presentation is likely 
to uh, also be misleading unless you consider right through dysfunction as a differential diagnosis. <coughs> because then you will do the wrong thing, which is keep working. Always suspect it. Stress, once you have the echo on the patient, do something. Do something to the patient. Don't just look at the nice picture. Do something which changes the working conditions of the right ventricle, <coughs> and then you can see how it reacts. And uh, monitor if you uh, if you have the uh, if you have the uh, good relationship with the PA catheter as I used to have, and repeat echo. I think that uh, nowadays almost everybody can do an echo, and, and repeating it makes a lot of sense. And in any case, what you will need in these patients advanced hemodynamic monitoring. Whatever technology you use, you just need to be as comprehensive as possible. Thank you. Questions? Comments? More of a reflection, thank you, Start with. But I think uh, you're so right in that about you need to you need to use both because you need to monitor and to sample. And if you have the PA catheter you can do that. Because if you have an echo and another guy comes and do another echo and of course you can save them, but it won't give you the line. Exactly. I fully, I fully agree with you. I fully agree with you. I think that there we will probably see in the in the years to come. Once the technology becomes cheaper, we will see these these continual, continual esophageal probes that you can use, use also for monitoring. I mean, I know in the U.S. I know centers where they, they, they have trained the nurses to nurses to uh, uh, to use the, the continual uh, esophageal probes just to monitor, you know, visually. Mm. Uh, and it's we, we've used we've used them also for for weaning patients from assistive devices. Or, or when using ventricular assist devices, just to to, to prevent uh, surprise collapses of the uh, of the ventricle or dislocation of the catheters and so. At the moment, they are too expensive for routine use, but I think that that in the years to come they will become cheaper, and, and then then of course I mean it will be part. They also that will not replace the normal echo. That that's for sure. But I mean it will provide us more possibilities to to give a to get a, a more comprehensive picture. And, and, and in that sense, I think that uh, we shouldn't throw anything away. Yeah. We should just say, you know, how do, we, how do we get the complete picture? And it is complex. There is no way out of it. And the less we teach physiology, the more and more complex it will be for the younger generation. <laughs> because the physiology doesn't change as, you, you can't change it by randomized control trials. It's still there. <laughs> Just a question about the monitoring. Um, obviously, we all understand the concept of direct uh, monitoring both with the uh, pulmonary catheter. But what about indirect monitoring, such as impedance monitoring and, and other such new technologies that are developing now? Is there anything that you would find which is now sort of up and coming, which would be more sort of uh, comparable, maybe easier to use? I think they, uh, th that's a very important <coughs> point. I think that these technologies have been up and coming now for I mean, impedance uh, cardiac output measurements were tested in the 70s. 
uh, and and uh, again in the 80s, 90s, and and we see some evolution. I think that we will in the future certainly see much more possibilities to to do uh, non in non let's say less invasive monitoring. The problem is that the bulk of the circulation is intrathoracically. And, and to visualize that is, is darn difficult. And, and until we have there, better opportunities. I'm sure they will come, but, uh, but until we get a bit, a bit further there, uh, I think we still, still need all this technology. And in, in fact, what I think is, is quite exciting is the, the uh, possibilities that we have nowadays to better use the information from the existing technologies. For example, pulmonary artery pulse contour cardiac output measurements were tested in the 80s, but they were abandoned. The reason being, of course, because you know in this highly elastic circulation, small things change a lot. But with now available computing power and technologies, you could auto-calibrate them, just you know, make may signal, signal uh, recognition and say, you know, by this change in the signal pattern, recalibrate it. So, you know, all these kind of things uh, will improve the existing technologies before we have the new ones, which will then hopefully be at some point really, you know, game changers. Can I have a reflection regarding treatment? Because the situation when you have a right ventricular failure can be quite different. I mean, it's if you have a post cardiac surgery patient versus a septic patient, yeah. and for example, using milrinone in that situation can be, I mean, it's, you really have to think about using your milrinone and the doses and how you, how you use. Do you have any reflections on that? Well, I think that uh, the, the, first, the first issue is to quickly normalize what can be normalized or, or, or can be minimized, the harm minimized, which means Lowering the uh, the airway pressures as as far as it's possible, even you know, even uh, accepting lower arterial saturations as long as they don't decrease the the mixed venous saturation a lot. Usually, the paradox is when we have a patient uh, with, for example, uh, ARDS or acute lung injury, and the patient has a bad oxygenation. What we do, we do everything which just worsens the conditions of the right heart. We increase the peak, we increase the, the airway pressures. And if we don't monitor the SVO2, then all we do to improve the arterial saturation will actually push the SVO2 down and worsen the uh, afterload for the right heart. So I think these the, the small things which can be done immediately and, and explored at the bedside, what is the response? I would, I would start with those. And then I think the next issue would be check, is, is there acidosis? Is there, you know, is there an acute change in CO2 which could trigger it? Is there an acute change in FiO2? I remember years and years ago, I once had to put an emergency ECMO by a patient where the, uh, the uh, colleague who took over the unit uh, started to reduce the FiO2 from 100% as we, as we had decided, and he redu reduced it from 100% to 95% the FiO2. The patient had a 50% shunt, and, and the, uh, the response was an acute desaturation of the, uh, of the mixed venous uh, saturation and an immediate acute corpulmonale. We had to go flying into ECMO. So 
it, it's, it's subtle small things uh, to take care of. And then I think one thing is for sure, you would need to get some some tones mm. for the right ventricles. So be it be it uh, norepinephrine or be it adrenaline, certainly a a a, a reasonable amount. Uh, I would I would just give as a, as a preventive measure. For example, by by acute uh, by the um, uh, heart transplantation patients where we t typically have these problems, we usually give so you know 300 400 micrograms of adrenaline just to to give a certain tonus on the right ventricle. Uh, and then, of course, then come the possibilities for vasodilatation. And, and I think that even though NO is no good for ARDS, but NO is still good for acute, acute right heart failure for reducing the afterload of the right ventricle. So those would be so. Or if I don't have NO at hand, right away, you, you could also try prostacycline. And my favorite drug is aminophilin because you can just give 50 milligrams and see you know what happens to the pressures. If it works, it can be dramatic. If it doesn't work, you just stop and that's it. Mm, I wouldn't give it as a bonus. But I, what I, I use, this is, this is really fully, fully biased personal experience. Uh, I have always used aminophilin as a test because you can see very rapidly with a small dose how the system reacts, and then you can then you can, for example, think about milrinone as, uh, as, uh, as an option. Yeah. But milrinone as an inhalation? Never used. Never used. Okay. I have, I have it's no a idea. bit of popular here in Sweden. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's cheap. Is safety. it? Has it been? Has it been tested for drug safety for that indication? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in the beginning, you mentioned central venous pressure and yes. indicating that it's not as useless as many people say. Is it still a role for central venous pressure and how should it be used? It is. Central venous pressure shows you how the system reacts to, to changes in the loading. So I think it's, first of all, high central venous pressure is always an alarm. I mean, for me, if I see that the central venous pressure is is uh, clearly above 10, I get very worried. I think I need to find the reason why is it so high. Could be volume loading, could be, could be a, a question of, of, uh, of the thoracic uh, uh, circumstances, could be a, unfortunately also a, a failed measurement, wrong <coughs> measurement. Uh, but I, I think it's a high CVP is always an alarm sign. And I would accept a high CVP only when I see that the right heart is doing well, despite of the high, the, the high CVP. So I would do an echo, see, you know, if the right heart is either hypertrophic, common uh, reason for a high CVP, or that there are interthoracic other causes for, 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 for higher pressures and no dilatation of the right heart, then I would, then I would accept a, a higher CVP. A low CVP, if the patient is not, not vasoconstricted, I think it's good news. You know, it, it says that the heart is, heart is managing well the venous return. So, so I think CVP is, especially it is a warning signal. And then it is a signal for you when you do a manipulation. For example, if you, if you do a volume challenge, if you have done a relevant loading of the right heart, you should see at least a temporary increase in CVP. 
What I do, I, li I like to do, I take a 50cc syringe, fill it with uh, ringers, bang, and I look at the curve. If the curve doesn't go up, then I know I didn't blow the circulation, then I give another, and then it should start going up and hopefully also coming down. If it stays elevated, then I will stop and observe. Because really it's, it's, it's all about challenging the system and then looking at the reaction. Because if you don't at least momentarily load the right heart, then you can't say if it's responsible. Getting back to the pulse pressure variation. Uh, could you use it together with the CVP? So if you have a pulse pressure variation and you have a high CVP, for example, that could... It's a worry sign, yeah. yeah. I, think, I think, please don't get me wrong, I, uh, I might have in the past spoken very aggressively against PPV, but not, not as a physiologic signal but as an indicator for giving volume. I think pulse pressure variation is an extremely important signal. It tells you that for some reason the left ventricle is preload dependent. And the reasons can be either failing right heart or it can be, as we would like to interpret it, a lack of volume. So in that sense, combining the two <coughs> Conceptually makes sense. Conceptually makes sense. You could differ between the two. Yeah. Reasons of dependence. Yeah, but I think that if if you have echo availability, you know, uh, checking checking the echo, or at least you know, thinking about it when you do your manipulation, and if you don't get what you would expect, then do an echo and, and see that it's it's not the problem with the right. But as I said, PPV is an important signal. Find the reason why it is there. Uh, as it was mentioned, there's many techniques, there's much development. But today, just today, if you can only use two devices in your ICU, what would you choose? Because there's also, you know, if we are 100 doctors, and we have maybe 150 septic shock per year, we cannot have too many devices because we need to to get used to them and to mm -hmm. interpret them. Which two would you use? Echo, PA, maybe? E echo and PA catheter, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Without any doubt. Yeah. Because that's where you get the maximum maximum amount of information. Mm -hmm. um, I'm uh, I'm reluctant for uh, for the uh, for the other devices, which would be a Pico for example, because I don't understand what they measure. <laughs> they, uh, they measure a black box and they tell me there is a number and the number to treat, but I don't know what's, what's wrong. Mm. And as far as it goes from, uh, from extravascular lung water, I, I always say, you know, it's, it's, like, uh, it's like you would have to choose between, you know, going to the toilet and your bladder, bladder, bladder is full or waiting until your pants are wet. 
So, uh, so knowing the risk that there is a risk for increased uh, lung water because of increased capillary pressures makes more sense than waiting until the lungs are wet. But it's uh, it's a personal bias, and and it, but but for uh, especially because I mean all these all these uh, calculated variables, the uh, the global end diastolic volumes and and whatnot, the way they have been used in clinical trials have shown either no or harmful effects. And I don't like numbers I don't understand. What does it do to the patient if this magic number goes above some, some limit? I, I don't understand it. And, and therefore, uh, I think it's certainly a, a uh, arterial uh, pulse contour analysis can be very useful in in, in looking at acute change in cardiac output, but beyond that, I think then it's it's really it's uh, uh, it's uh, necessary to know what's going on in the in both both sides. Shall we leave it there? Everybody looks tired. So Yuka, thank you very much for your insights on this subject. Thank you. Um, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.